Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In today's episode, we ask, what do social protection systems need to look like in order to promote inclusion, autonomy, and participation for persons with disabilities? Cash transfers are, of course, important to meet basic living costs as well as the extra costs that people with disabilities often need to pay just to access essential services. But people with disabilities also have high needs for healthcare, assistive devices, and extra support to go to school or be employed. In the meantime, traditional models of social protection that assume incapacity or poverty as prerequisites for receiving assistance may not be well designed to support persons with disabilities achieve full and effective participation in public life. In today's episode, we're featuring case studies on disability-inclusive social protection systems from Fiji and Thailand that bring cash and complementary programs together to help achieve this goal, and those are coming up shortly. But first, it's my pleasure to introduce Alex Cote, Disability and Social Protection Policy Specialist at UNICEF, who will be our guide to this topic today. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Joe, for having me in this podcast. Can I start just by asking you to characterise the risks and vulnerabilities of people with disabilities? What are their particular needs when it comes to social protection? At first, I think it's important to acknowledge that persons with disabilities have the same type of needs in terms of social protection than the rest of the population, but more so. They are more likely to be poor. They are more likely to be unemployed. Children are more likely to be out of school they are all more likely to face catastrophic health expenditure. And a big reason for that is this dual combo of it's harder to find job and sustain earning income. And in the other hand, there are disability-specific expenditure that person with disability face, be some uh, assistive devices like wheelchairs or taking the taxi because the bus is not accessible, or personal assistance, sign language interpretation, family members staying home to provide care and losing on economic opportunities. And so we end up in a situation where people with disabilities have to spend more to achieve the same standard of living and participation, but they are earning less. So speaking of social protection systems in particular, as it pertains to kind of the realisation of disability rights, there has been a recent effort to bring social protection into alignment with the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So I'm interested to hear from you, how does using the CRPD as a starting point change the way we need to be designing social protection for persons with disability, compared perhaps with the way social protection works for other vulnerable groups? I think the most important is the shift of paradigm that the CRPD brought, which is the aim of any policy intervention should be promotion of inclusion, autonomy, and participation. And it's particularly important for social protection, which traditionally have seen disability as a risk related to loss of income. If you look historically, most of the social protection system, especially social insurance, is basically you are a worker, you contribute, you have an accident, or you fall sick, and you acquire an impairment, which may restrict your ability to carry out the job you were doing, and you would go in 
in pension, disability pension, partial or complete. And for years, I would say there was not really this idea that we should be supporting the diversity of people with disabilities in their participation. And if you talk, for instance, in many lower income countries to organization of persons with disabilities, I think for years, they had issues with social protection saying, we don't want charity, we want jobs. And I think this was really a fundamental misunderstanding about what a rights-based approach to social protection for persons with disability can be. And I think it has changed a lot because of all the work that has been done in relation to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in particular, and more specifically on what it means for social protection with training with our colleagues, for instance, from the International Disability Alliance. I think in high income countries, there has been also a lot of work in terms of promotion of uh, return to work or economic empowerment, sometimes driven by austerity policies in terms of trying to reduce the fiscal impact of disability pension. But I truly believe also that there is a genuine motivation by policymakers to support more inclusion and participation of persons with disabilities. Another very important element is the world development of support services like personal assistance, supported living, for instance, persons with intellectual disabilities, um, support to parents of children with disabilities to prevent institutionalization. So all those steps are being taken by some countries um, and we see a, a movement starting, but I would say we are not there yet. The process is still ongoing. We'll pick up on some of those themes again in a moment, but first we'll play our first interview with Joshko Wakaniasi from the Pacific Disability Forum, which is about disability-inclusive social protection in Fiji. He's talking here about what people with disabilities can access through Fiji's formal social protection schemes, as well as how community-based approaches can work to ensure that people have access to some of those broader forms of support and the opportunities that they need. Welcome, Joshko, and thank you for joining me for the Social Protection Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Can we start with the state-provided allowances and benefits in Fiji? What sort of support does a person with a disability receive from the government? So persons with disability can actually qualify for any of the social protection schemes. So Fiji currently has four cash transfer schemes, uh, whether it be poverty benefit scheme, care protection. Uh, senior citizen pension scheme, and the latest is the disability allowance. Within the schemes are disability-specific schemes, such as the disability allowance and the bus fare concession scheme, which only is applicable to uh, older persons and persons with disability. But persons with disability also qualify for all other mainstream schemes. Thank you. Can we talk a little bit about the disability allowance? I know that you and the National Federation for Persons with Disabilities in Fiji worked to advocate with the government of Fiji in 2016 when it was reviewing and, and looking at the introduction of this allowance. Can you tell me a little bit about what the disability allowance is designed to provide? Thank you, thank you, Joan. I, I guess what's important to note is that as part of the initiative in 2016, was that government also established 
within the line ministry, a disability unit to ensure that social protection that is disability specific actually supports the sustainability going forward. Also looking at the different methods right down to payments. So ensuring that for those that can receive through bank transfers, receive through bank transfers, for those that needed to be, you know, money to be taken through cash, uh, you know, postmaster system, whereby the person have to be taking the funds directly because the person cannot access banks. So all this was, is important in terms of how they set up in the consultation process. What is also crucial was to look into the disability extra cost. Obviously, you know, for care protection, specifically for children, you do have children with disability. In terms of poverty, you do have persons with disability who are poor. And also for those with senior citizens. So the disability land scheme was designed specifically to, to look into the disability extra cost. And their disability actually creates this. So for Fiji, because we don't have public transport for physically impaired persons who need wheelchairs or utilizing wheelchairs and, and high-end mobility equipments, they cannot travel by taxi. And you know, the, the cost that will be uh, associated with this, as an example. You know. Thank you. That was a couple of really interesting examples there of how and why design also really matters. So not just how allowances are designed, their advocacy and, and what costs they need to cover, but even some of the things you were saying about ensuring that people can actually access those benefits through different means. So in your work, you also work with the community-based inclusive development model. Can you talk us through what that is and how it also supports persons with disabilities in Fiji and I think also in some other Pacific Island countries? What is important and crucial, we must understand that the, the environment within the urban areas is very different from the rural areas. My impairment level would be the same irrelevant of where I am. But my disability challenges would differ from an urban setting to a rural setting. From the perspective within the region, here in the Pacific, but we're made up of also little islands. And the levels of what's available in the main islands may not be readily available in their islands. So putting benchmarks, especially for education, employment and health, it is crucial to ensure that there should be no compromise when it comes to safety nets to be across at national level within the rural areas. Well, it has to, it has to be first and foremost be person-centered. You can't have a one-size-fits-all system. So if I'm a child uh, in a rural setting, then I should be given every support, every accessibility device that I might need so that I can then be part and, and go to school like any other child. Like in Fiji's context, you know, we have the no return policy. So you know, for any child who goes into school, the school cannot send the child home. They cannot turn the child away. But then at the same time is that if you don't have the support systems or the technology needs that the person needs to be included, then they can easily get left behind. They, they can be there, just be there, being there physically. But are they really participating? And I guess one of the good examples we have in Fiji on this is that Fiji now has over you know, 200 schools that are having uh, inclu inclusive programs. And the ministry also provides uh, up to $500 per child uh, in terms of what they might need within the school setting. So when you look at the uh, social protection per se, and in terms of uh, the, the way it's cross-cutting and together with CBID, uh, there's a correlation. There's an understanding of the two is that what a person might not need in an urban setting might be needed in a rural setting. 
so it's not measured by disability groups, but it's measured or tailor-made, and it's more cost-effective in that regard. Even the support from the faith-based organizations is crucial in this space. In terms of is it is a government investment, I would say it's a bits and pieces, but different actors playing different parts of support. And if you look at the new CBID approach, it's about downward resourcing and bottom-up reporting and informing. That way, the person or it's the individual or it's the situation that's actually being addressed. That's really interesting. And then, as you say, at the sort of bottom-up level, it's more around community organisations and faith-based organisations helping to identify needs and feed that up. Is that right? Yes. They're part of the planning and, most important of all, they're also part of the monitoring and evaluation. So, you know, it's a holistic approach to everything. So the beauty of it also is that if you have them to ensure that they're part of the measure, you know, is it working? And not government stepping back and say, uh, and it's working and then the civil society organization playing just the role of shadowing and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're correct in this part. So then it, it becomes more feasible long-term. Uh, there's a better sustainability and it's more cost-effective long-term for sustainability. Is there anything else you think people should know about how to ensure or how we should all be thinking about disability-inclusive social protection or anything else from the lessons of Fiji that you'd like to share? I think what's important is that, you know, if we look at the diversity of, of people in the space, and I guess if you're designing a safety net system, I think what's important is always to, to consult target population, because that way you get the insight in terms of what would be the best system, but also at the same time to ensure that they are also included in the implementation. Also share with them the learnings. Uh, in order to include person disability, you got to really understand the situation, the circumstances. Uh, you know, often only then will you really appreciate uh, you know, social protection or support systems no, or, or accessibility to this information uh, across as individual, because in, in the space of disability, we also have diversity of disability. You know, we don't have a one-size-fits-all system. We don't have one simple impairment group, and we don't have one solution uh, to everything. But it takes at least a discussion, a consultation, or a dialogue, uh, you know, amongst the different se- sectors in order to find appropriate solutions, but solutions that are also cost-effective, sustainable, and uh, can be expanded and built on. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for making the time to join us on the Social Protection Podcast today. You're welcome. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Alex, we talked a bit about CBID or Community-Based Inclusive Development in that interview. How can these kinds of community approaches uh, complement national social protection systems? So CBID, I would say, is a strategy, which is about mobilizing community resources from the diversity of stakeholders. And I would say a big focus is on removing barriers that persons with disability face, be it in terms of raising awareness in the community about the diversity of persons with disability, their rights, but also working with the different stakeholders and service provider in the community, the school, the healthcare center, the companies or small business, 
to promote inclusion of persons with disabilities. Some of the challenges that we faced with CBID is really taking it to scale, ensuring that there is an infrastructure to facilitate this work at community level for the entire country. Very, very few countries have managed that. And one of the things that is extremely important and where we see a lot of potential is actually there is a culture of case management in CBID because you would have a CBID worker that will work with children with disabilities and their families or with groups of persons with disabilities, for instance, in terms of livelihood. And one of the things we are looking forward in the near future is actually a greater connection between social protection scheme, especially cash transfer, and CBID. So we could build what we we would call cash plus CBID support, which I think for many lower income countries could be a very good way forward. And I think perhaps an approach that does hold particular promise in contexts like the Pacific, where perhaps there is already that kind of community-based culture of care, as well as relatively small populations as well that might be able to facilitate some of that. You were talking a little bit before about targeting and eligibility, which are also key considerations for program designs. You were saying that typical social protection programs might look at whether somebody is working or assessed as being unable to work as eligibility criteria. Other programs, of course, look at poverty or a family's economic status to determine whether somebody can receive benefits. Can you tell us a little bit more about why these sorts of approaches are a problem for inclusive social protection, especially for persons with disabilities? I think this is really one of the core of the work we're doing and a core of the debate. A person with disabilities that is in a non-poor family will not, in many countries, be eligible to any support, while actually this person themselves are poor in the sense that they are very low participation. They are entirely dependent on the household. They are probably not working. And their possibility to escape poverty individually or set up their own household and families are extremely limited. And I think sometimes there is a, a confusion because between poverty benefits that target persons with disabilities and benefits that really try to tackle disability costs and disability issues. So if I am a person with disability and there is a mean test or there is a criteria like incapacity to work, basically the message the system is sending me is prove us that you are poor enough and incapable of working enough so that we will support you. But if you want to participate, if you want to contribute, if you want to do the the most of your abilities to be an active member of the community, we will not support you. And that is really not the message that social protection system should be sending. Thank you. It is so striking that as soon as you clarify the goal of these sorts of systems being to help people to participate, that suddenly all of the logic about who is included and excluded needs to radically change. We also touched on children and inclusive education in the interview based on the Fiji experience. How should systems be designed to support the inclusion of children with disabilities in particular? Thank you, Joe. This is indeed a question dear to my heart since I work for UNICEF. And I would say 
social protection has in, in many lower and middle income countries ignored for many years and in many contexts children with disabilities in a sense that there was no incapacity to work aspect. And so the premise of social protection and disability was not really taking them into consideration. This has changed. And we've seen many countries, for instance, Brazil with the BPC, which is uh, offered also to children with disabilities, but Namibia, South Africa, Mauritius, Thailand, Fiji, Georgia, and many, many countries actually in Europe and Central Asia have either child disability benefit or disability allowance that are available for children with disabilities and their families. And the level of extra costs that families of children with disabilities are facing is really important. There is a lot of healthcare cost follow-up to be done, assistive devices are needed, counseling for parents, and many parents would look for answers and they would travel to the bigger city, would move to the bigger city because that's where services for children with disabilities are. All those elements cost. And it can have a tremendous impact on family well-being and on the development of children. I think it's important also to highlight that children with disability are much more likely to be institutionalized and to face neglect. And I think this is really important to acknowledge that the social protection system can do something. Not alone, of course, you need healthcare, you need inclusive education, but a, a child disability allowance or a child grant with a good disability top-up, a case management aspect that would connect a little bit the social protection support with other type of services, financing the development of respite uh, services, for instance, so that family members can take a break one weekend per month, for instance, can have a lot of impact. Thank you, Alex. Next, we'll hear from Pacharamont Pitapanyakul, who is a director at the Division of Rights and Welfare of Persons with Disabilities in Thailand's Ministry of Social Development and Human Security. You'll hear that Pacharamont is speaking in Thai with consecutive interpretation provided by her colleague. Welcome, Pacharamont. Thailand has robust legislation setting out the rights of persons with disabilities. What support can a person with a disability receive in Thailand? As you know that we have the Act of Empowerment of Persons with Disabilities in 2000 uh, launched. Mainly there is a specific section in this Act, which is Section 20, which details the, the different kind of entitlements that people with disabilities can access. So for example, access to healthcare services, to education, to employment, and so on. So in terms of uh, social protection, we give, uh, for example, cash transfer, which is uh, called uh, disability allowance in Thailand. We also have uh, personal assistance services. We also have caregiver services, sign language interpretation services, accessibility adaptation funds, and also animal services. People with disabilities can borrow free interest loans for five years uh, without interest. And yeah. the fund also gives a funding support to empowerment projects to DPOs, meant to organizations of persons with disabilities and other organizations. And as you might have known about the employment quota in Thailand, we also uh, promote the employment of persons with disabilities in, the, in both private and public sector 
So we have the quota uh, is now one, 100 per one. So if you have one of 100 employees, then you have to hire one person with disability. So this is the overall welfare and benefits that people with disabilities have access to in Thailand. As you were explaining all of those kinds of support, you talked about the personal assistance scheme. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what that scheme does and how it is designed to support people with disabilities to to live in their communities and to fulfil those rights around accessing education, employment and some of the things you touched on earlier. The personal assistance services that we have actually for those who have uh, severe disabilities. So if you have severe disabilities and you're unable to perform some daily activities yourself, then you can actually ask, apply for personal assistance services. For example, if you want to go out, go to work, to go to school, then you can ask for the service. Also, uh, personal assistance can also assist in daily activities, for example, eating, toileting, bathing, showering, things like that. Yeah. We have had 1,400 personal assistance nationwide, which is still quite low, actually, in, compared to the number of disabilities who need personal assistance services. But anyway, we will try to increase the number of personal assistants in the future. So the main issue is, of, of course, the budget that we have. Actually, also, personal assistants, the jobs are quite specific, and you, you need some uh, kind of specific people who actually are interested in it. And the payment for the, the services is that the government pays uh, 50 baht per hour per person for one personal assistant, and they can pay only six hours per day. And in total, in one month, uh, the government will pay the maximum of 9,000 baht. And just to explain to the audience that 50 baht is about 1.5 US dollars per hour, so it is quite low, even in the Thai context. So the personal assistance scheme is designed, as you say, for people with severe disabilities who need more support. I guess, is this extra support that family members can't provide? What is the problem that this program is designed to fix? Um, actually, it's not particularly designed for people with severe disabilities uh, in the beginning, but the department actually has some kind of assessment system so they assess if uh, this person can eat by themselves, things like that. So if you can do it, there's different levels of your ability, right? So after the, the assessment, then they, they will decide if that person uh, can get the personal assistance service or not. But the reason that the family members to do uh, kind of to help or to assist person with disabilities in their daily activities is that there are three main reasons. So. So the first reason is that some people with severe disabilities are neglected I mean, by their families. And the second reason is that some of them do not live with their family uh, members. They live alone or with someone else. And the other one, the last one, which is very important, is that if you ask for, for assistance from your family members, usually when they help you, when they assist you, they kind of overrule your decision. Um, so if you want to eat, uh, sometime, but they said, no, uh, there is no sometime today, So, but we have noodles, so you eat noodles, something like that. So this is very important. I mean, so personal assistant, if you use outsiders as personal assistant, a person with disabilities can practice making decisions on their own. 
So I did want to ask briefly about the personal assistance. You said you have over a thousand, you do need more. These are people that need to be trained who are interested in working in these kinds of caring roles. Who are personal assistants? Are they people who have cared for people with disabilities in their own families who are now working for others? Are they health professionals like nurses? What's the workforce look like? I'm interested in, in who they are. Mostly our personal assistants are community volunteers who work for different ministries in Thailand, for example, the Ministry of Social Development and Human Security, the Ministry of Interior, the Ministry of Public Health. But anyway, even though they are volunteers, if they work as personal assistants, they actually get paid. At the beginning of this interview, you explained all of the different kinds of support that potentially persons with disabilities in Thailand can access, beginning with the disability allowance, which is a a monthly cash payment for, as I understand it, anyone who has been assessed as having a disability. So it's not linked to poverty or who's poor or who's working. It's just as long as you have a disability, you can receive this allowance. But of course, You've also got all of these other kinds of support that you've mentioned, like the personal assistance scheme, incentives and quotas around employment for people with disabilities. Why is cash not enough? Or why is the cash, the allowance, only the start? And and why do we need to be thinking much more about all of these different forms of support? The answer is actually quite simple because um, the disability allowance alone is not enough. It's just the basic income that we can uh, assure to persons with disabilities that at least every month you receive this amount, which is 800 to 1,000 baht. So that's why we have other measures or other support that we provide to people with disabilities. Personal employment, uh, personal assistance, loans, etc., in order to ena- enable them to become active members of the society. So, I mean, if, if they can work, then they can actually earn income uh, on their own. And the cash transfer is just the basic income that, just to ensure that they can live, they have this money to sustain themselves or to pay for extra uh, costs uh, related to their disability. Even though we have quite a robust and, and solid laws to protect and promote the rights of persons with disabilities in Thailand, but now 10 years have passed by. So it's time to review if the benefits are sufficient for persons with disabilities or if there are anything that we should change or increase or add. So this is a, a big challenge for us now. Thank you for adding that. That's a really good point. Kun Pacharamon, thank you so much for joining us for the Social Protection Podcast today. You're welcome. Uh, thank you, Kun Sawang, also, for translation today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. And as you heard at the end there, special thanks to Sawang Srisong, who provided interpreting for that interview. Alex, Thailand's personal assistance scheme is a really interesting feature of the package of interventions that are available there. Is this kind of scheme common and what kind of value could it have? Actually, it's not common at all. And I think this is really something we love, the personal assistance scheme in Thailand. Uh, It's complicated, takes time to develop, but it's a very important element. We see a dearth of 
support services for persons with disabilities. With aging population, there will be more and more need for support services and personal assistance. So we are really looking up to Thailand to see how this program develops. And we really wish that other countries are actually following in the steps of Thailand in developing this kind of, of scheme. And, and support services are actually extremely important also from a gender equality perspective. Today, when we say support to persons with disability in low and middle income country, mostly unpaid care, mostly women and girls. We know, for instance, that girls without disabilities that live in a household with a person with disability are less likely to complete school. And the absence of support services publicly supported in terms of funding and in terms of organization is creating this uh, amount of work unpaid care for women and girls, which we saw exploding during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think it's, it's really important. If you want gender equality in the community, thinking about disability inclusive social protection and support services is also a great way to make progress. I wanted to ask you about coverage disability allowance in Thailand that we just heard about has fairly high coverage of its population of persons with disabilities. I've seen estimates of it being around 80% of that population. But, you know, that's a bit of an outlier. In most low and middle income countries, there are still big gaps in the coverage of these kinds of basic safety nets and allowances, let alone the kinds of cash plus and complementary interventions that we've been talking about today. What is the way forward for expanding disability-inclusive social protection. Thank you, Joe. This is indeed a critical issue. And I think we need to really look at different contexts. There are different things we can do. I think some of the work that has been done in, uh, for instance, Indonesia, has been to create a disability top-up for existing poverty benefits. I would not say that it's ideal, but it could be a step forward. Then you can have means-tested disability benefit. I think South Africa is a quite good example of this, which is it's not poverty targeted, it's more affluence tested. Basically, you exclude the rich rather than targeting the poor. And that's one way, I think, to navigate some of the political economy issues around universal support. In the other end, you have countries, thinking of Nepal, for instance, who went for universal non-means-tested disability allowance. And they did not achieve yet great coverage. And one of the reasons is administrative capacity to identify a person with disability and assess their need and certify them so that they can be eligible to such benefit. And also there are fiscal limitations. But I would say that the most important is that the system start to acknowledge that persons with disabilities have additional needs, face disability-related costs, including when they are looking at work. And ultimately, I think as social protection system mature, they will go towards universal disability benefits because it makes sense. And what we see is that more lower and middle income countries are thinking outside the box of incapacity to work. They are starting to to move in that direction one after another. And I think if we are in a country that do not have the political consensus for universal cash transfer and or not the fiscal capacity, I think a very good first step is also to build progressively those universal disability registry by providing for some cash transfer, but also for others concession 
with regards, for instance, in terms of exemption of fees for education for children with disabilities or on transport when there is transport, public transport, etc. So there are ways to provide a package that would not immediately include a universal disability allowance. And that would be good enough so that people with disability register and identify themselves to the system so that as the system capacity grow, they are in position to actually identify person with disability and provide them the support they need. Thank you. And it is interesting to raise this idea around concessions, which we often don't hear about, I think, as much in, in other areas of social protection. Now, before we wrap up, regular listeners will know that we like to end each episode with some quick wins, which is when we ask our guest for recommendations for research or news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you, the listener, should know more about. Today we have you in the hot seat, Alex. So what have you brought to share? So it's not Christmas yet, but I have a few elements that I would like to share. First, the conference on disability inclusion and social protection that took place in March uh, on socialprotection.org. I really invite everybody to go to the website. There are funded really great intervention on all the topics we mentioned. So I think this is really important. I would like also to flag that in September, we will start a consultation on a guidance document on inclusion of persons with disabilities and social protection systems. And we really would like people to look at the guidance document and tell us, you know what? Yeah, it works, doesn't really make sense with us in our context, etc. We see it more like this or more like that. This is really important. As we, we talked in this episode, I think it's feasible and many countries are doing it, but it's complex. So the more we get feedback, the better it is. And I, I would like to finish maybe with, with something that is not disability specific, but actually this inclusive. It's the practitioner note from UNICEF, Middle East and North Africa on inclusive targeting, identification and registration. And I think it's a very interesting paper because it looks at those issues around targeting and registration with different marginalized groups in mind, including persons with disabilities. And I think for many of our colleagues that are listening to us, they may not be in a program that is disability specific. They may not have the room in the country where they are working to have a disability specific allowance yet. But there are many things that we can do to make our work disability inclusive together with other groups that are also facing marginalization and for which social protection need to evolve as well in terms of support to inclusion and participation. Thank you. And as always, we'll put links to all of those resources in the show notes. Thank you, Alex, for being our guide to disability inclusive social protection today and for making the time to share your expertise with our audience. Thank you, Joe, for having me and always a pleasure to work with socialprotection.org team. You're fantastic. And just one last thing before we go. This podcast is a production of socialprotection.org, which is, as Alex just said, the place to go online for information, research and community on all things social protection. Our annual survey for user feedback is out now and we would love it if you could take five minutes to give us feedback about our webinars, blogs, our podcasts and other features. 
It will really help us to improve our services and we'll put a link to that survey in our show notes. As ever, you can follow socialprotection.org on Twitter at SP underscore gateway and find us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. Back next month. See you then.